You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. Today's episode is Codes and Communities. I'm Hannah Smith, Senior Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And I'm Katie Geary, a Beckett Fellow. Katie and I are bringing you the story today of an American community that's often mysterious to most of us because it's so isolated. That community is the Amish. Who are they? What do they believe? How do they define themselves? As Amish, as American, or some combination of both? And in a concrete way, what do their beliefs mean for their relationship with the government and the rest of America? Today, we're going to talk to you a little bit about what happens when traditional Amish practices clash with mainstream education and housing codes. We'll also be talking about the unique contributions the Amish make to American society without most of us even being aware. So it turns out that the Amish are actually quite diverse in their beliefs and culture. But because of what they do have in common, which is a general commitment to separateness from contemporary trends, most of us don't really understand them that well. The Amish of North America are not cut from the same cultural cookie cutter. There are actually 40 distinct Amish groups, I call them tribes, that have different practices, different symbols of their identity, and different ways of interacting with the outside world. Donald Craybill is a professor of sociology at Elizabethtown College. He explained where the Amish originally came from, which, in case you didn't know, was not America. The Amish came from the Bern area of Switzerland and then the Alsace area of France. In other words, those two areas are very close together in and also uh, what today would be southern Germany. So it was in that region where they first emerged in 1693. Like Donald said, there are differences among the Amish. Well, the 40 different tribes range from very conservative to very progress-minded. And uh, across that spectrum are major differences in terms of use of technology and what's acceptable in technology. Secondly, their view of the outside world and how comfortable they are interacting with the outside world and government. And third would be the extent to which they are rural or more suburban. The most conservative ones live in very rural areas where they would be typically far away from a city of 10,000 people or more. There aren't any Amish in Europe anymore. The only Amish left are in the United States and some parts of Canada. And the reason the Amish settled here in the United States in the first place is because of our country's great commitment to religious freedom. And they definitely identify as American. I think it would be very appropriate to call them Amish Americans. They have a distinct sense of being Amish, but also a clear-cut sense of being American. They have great respect for America, for the United States, because of the government's respect for religious freedom in the Constitution, that the government won't interfere with their religious practice. They generally don't fly a flag, but they have a a keen, clear sense of being American citizens. And if they get into legal trouble, they will quickly appeal to the Constitution and the First Amendment for religious freedom. To most of us, the thought that the Amish are American just like the rest of us somehow seems discordant. 
it feels like their whole focus is on being different from the rest of us. And they don't do things that we think of American citizens doing, like... Like paying taxes. And actually, Donald explained that that's a misconception. That's simply false. But a lot of people think that. They're exempt from Social Security taxes, but otherwise they pay taxes like the rest of us. Income tax, property tax, school tax. In fact, there are more misconceptions about the Amish than we might even realize. Secondly, most people think they're farmers. Only about a third of them nationally are farming. The other two-thirds are in some kind of business. And the third misconception is they're pretty dumb. They've only gone to eighth grade. And frankly, some of them are very smart and very bright. My best empirical indicator of that is their success in small businesses. Amish small businesses have a failure rate in the first five years of under 10%. In the outside world, in America, the failure rate of small businesses in the first five years is around 65%. So what you're saying is that basically everything we know about the Amish is wrong? Yes and no. Some of what we think is accurate, the triangle on the back of the Amish buggies, or saying no to certain life-saving medical treatments like open-heart surgery, these things are true, but not for all of the Amish. What's complicated for us is there is no hierarchy that binds all Amish folks together. That's Karen Johnson Weiner. She's the Distinguished Service Professor of Anthropology at SUNY Potsdam in upstate New York. We talked to her about how the Amish view their relationship with the legal system. Like Donald, she pointed out that the major challenge in understanding the Amish is their diversity. Each Amish congregation or or church district is really independent. It may be affiliated with others that have the same ordnung or church discipline, but decisions made in one church district are not binding on folks in any other church district. So, you know, you have you have folks in very progressive communities who interact with the government in one way, and you have folks in very, very conservative communities that often come into to much more conflict with the government simply because their disciplines are stricter and much more conservative. So, you know, Amish are really all over the place. You know, they owe their obedience to the government. It's mandated by God. They'll be obedient to the government up until that obedience would bring them into conflict with their their church. But where that point is varies greatly. So this brings us to what we wanted to talk about in the first place, the law. For the most part, the Amish are very law-abiding citizens. But there are a few areas in which their religious beliefs bring them into conflict with the law. And there are two important cases that we're going to talk about today that show this in a very concrete way. One is a landmark Supreme Court case from 1972, and the other is one from 2012, which is a much lesser known case because it ended in a settlement, not in court. The case from 1972 was Wisconsin v. Yoder. In a nutshell, the case was about compulsory school attendance. The state of Wisconsin required that children attend school until the age of 16. At the time, the Amish always withdrew their children from school after 8th grade, more like around age 14. Wisconsin pursued three Amish fathers for taking their children out of school, found them guilty of breaking the law, and fined them. It seemed straightforward. But what the state of Wisconsin didn't understand was the reason why the Amish had taken their children out of school after 8th grade in the first place. What you have is is a, a culture in which tradition counts very much. 
and in which parents are, are really tasked with providing the kind of upbringing that will be best for their children so that they can become future church members. And there's a, a real sense that to, to send them into high school, to have them do more book learning, to have them engage with subjects or activities that, that you know, aren't in keeping with church ways might be harmful. But even that isn't some across-the-board thing. Now, even today, there are a lot of Amish kids that go to public school still. You know, in, in parts of Holmes County, Ohio, for example, there are kids in public school. I, I know of a number of settlements where, you know, children with learning disabilities might start out in a public school. So, you know, you can't say Amish, the Amish are against public school, the Amish are against high school. What they are in favor of is the kind of education that will prepare their children to lead lives as members of an Amish church community. The timing of taking children out of school was integral to preparing them for life in the Amish community. What life in that community looks like is very different than for the rest of us, as Donald explained. You have basically three choices. I, I'm going to speak about men. A young male has basically three choices. He could go into farming, work with um, his father, uncle, or neighbors, and eventually move into farming. Um, he could work with an outside English business. He might work on a carpentry crew operated by an outside, and I say English, meaning non-Amish. Uh, the Amish call the outside world English in terms of the primary language. Third, he could work in an Amish business. There are some 15,000 Amish-owned and operated, very successful businesses in North America. He could be employed there, or he could operate one of those and be an entrepreneur, an Amish entrepreneur. So in the Wisconsin case, the government was seriously impeding the ability of this Amish community to ground their children in their religious way of life. And this government action seriously impeded the Amish's free exercise rights under the First Amendment. I think that could be hard for a lot of us to understand. We grow up now with a commitment to opportunity, opportunity for everybody, you can do whatever you want. The Amish choice for their children seems like limiting their opportunities. But as Karen pointed out, in a way, this case was more about the non-Amish than the Amish. It's important to know that a lot of these conflicts come about not because you know, the Amish are, are against what goes on in the English world, it's that the English world has changed. Again, English meaning American. And so in the 1920s, the Amish were educating their kids like everybody else in rural America. They were going to little one-room schoolhouses. And Amish kids were going to school with, with non-Amish kids all over. And then the English world began to change. It began to consolidate schools, which required taking children out of the neighborhood, I mean, going to public school hadn't been an issue. But now... Going to public school where you didn't know the community, you didn't know the teachers, you didn't know the parents, that was an issue. And you'd have to bus them away from their community, away from the eyes of their parents. So what Karen was saying is that it's not so much that the Amish are peculiar, it's that the world around them has changed beyond original recognition. That's exactly right. So it turns out that most of the legal conflicts with the Amish come not so much from their active pushback from mainstream American life, but from something more fundamental. The fact that mainstream American life has changed while much of the Amish way of life 
has not. And it's hard because I think most of us like to think we're committed to pluralism. The idea of peaceful coexistence of many different kinds of people and different kinds of cultures. But we still find it really hard to understand choices that are so different. And this is where that's really put to the test. The truth is that the Amish life is different, and there's no way around that. But the difference is fundamental to their religious beliefs. And when it comes to religious liberty laws, we need to respect those differences in beliefs. Which is what the Supreme Court eventually did in this Wisconsin v. Yoder case. The court sided with the Amish fathers, not the state. And they said that the Amish interest in preparing the next generation in the Amish way of life ran deep into their religious foundations and that two more years of compulsory education didn't outweigh that religious interest. In a sense, the Amish just wanted to continue educating their kids the way most people did until relatively recently. And on that note, about the outside world changing, Hannah, would it be accurate to say that legal cases with the Amish are becoming more prevalent as society adopts new technologies and rules? I think that may be right, which actually brings us to our second case today. The Wisconsin case was especially sensitive because it involved children and parents' rights about educating their children. But this more recent case, which was also a Beckett-Friend case, was about building codes. Sounds exciting. I know, but really it's a fascinating case because it involves 12 Amish men facing jail time just because they wanted to build their homes in a traditional Amish way. Jail time for building a home? That seems extreme. I agree. So what's the backstory? Well, Karen, who helped the Beckett Fund with this case, talked to us a little bit about the background. And it started with a migration of sorts. Most of us think about the Amish as just staying in one place on their land and not moving anywhere. But the fact of the matter is, is that they move into new communities all the time. And that's where the trouble can start. Amish communities, the the traditional long-established Amish communities, have gotten big. In Lancaster County, where land isn't really available and costs a fortune anyway, you have a lot of Amish starting businesses, manufacturing businesses. In northern Indiana, same thing happens, but you have Amish going into factory work. Among the very conservative folks, what they've done is move to places where there is land. And they've moved, it's a conservative choice, they've moved to keep farming, to keep the old ways. They've begun a number of new settlements in New York, in Maine, in Wisconsin, all over. So so you have Amish, conservative Amish, who are moving to to maintain their lifestyle, and they're moving into areas that have never seen Amish before. And that's exactly what happened in Morristown, New York. A group of Swartzentruber Amish, one of the most conservative Amish tribes, moved into that town. And they expected to continue to build their homes the way they always had. So we brought in Lori Windham, Beckett Fund Senior Counsel and the lead lawyer on the Morristown Amish case. The way the Amish build is really interesting. They actually have a building committee made up of three Amish men who oversee to make sure the houses are built well and that they follow all the Amish rules. The Amish do a lot of things that are very precise and particular. You know, even the width of the brims on their hats have to uh, match and be a certain way. And the same thing's true of their homes. So they have certain ways that they anchor the homes to the foundation. They have certain ways they anchor the roofs to the homes. They have certain ways they make the windows and the doors. They don't use architect plans because they use plans that are handed down from father to son and taught to boys when they're very young. And so they didn't have any of these things. And they don't use modern smoke detectors or any battery-operated appliances inside their homes. 
And so what happened is the Amish were building the same way that they had been for 200 years, and the Amish had not changed, but the laws had. And so suddenly you had a conflict that they had never had before. You know, building codes can be really complex. They include requirements on sizes of doors and windows and how you lay the foundations and modern appliances like smoke detectors. And the Amish, they build their homes really differently from mainstream American builders. But the Amish's building codes are no less detailed. So in Morristown, the Amish way of building and the town's building codes collided. Well, the town did something really unusual, which is they started requiring the Amish to submit plans certified by an architect or engineer and get building permits. And the Amish, before this, had always just gone down to the local office and paid the fee and received a building permit. And suddenly, the code enforcement official started forcing them to submit certified plans uh, that would say they would comply with all of these detailed state requirements. If they didn't submit those plans, they couldn't get a building permit. But of course, they couldn't submit those plans because their traditional ways of building didn't comply with all the state regulations. So they couldn't get building permits. So if they built, then they were in violation of the law and could go to jail for doing that. Now, if I understand it right, the Amish don't defend themselves in court. You don't have Amish who are lawyers. So the Beckett Fund got involved in the case. That's right. And doing so meant we had to learn an awful lot about Amish culture. So the Amish don't use telephones. They don't use computers. How did you communicate with our clients? This was definitely the most challenging uh, client communication situation I've ever had. If we needed to get a message to the Amish right away, I would reach out to Steve Ballin, who was the public defender who had taken on the Amish cases. And either he would go or a friend of the Amish would go and actually drive in their cars and drive around to the Amish homes and tell them what we needed to tell them. And if we needed to have a meeting with them, then we would ask uh, Steve or Marianne or Karen to go out and find a good date. And uh, they would, at church, when they all meet up, they would talk about and find a good time, a date for us to come, and they would tell us that. And uh, then I would get on a plane and another plane and get in a rental car and drive for about two and a half hours and go to one of the Amish homes. And when I arrived, I would see the horse-drawn buggies uh, pulling up and, and I would pass some of them along the road and everybody would get there and we'd all come to one house and meet and talk about the case. So there was a lot of back and forth communication between the Amish and the government that went into this case. And most of it had to do with really digging into Amish building practices. Part of what we had to do was just spend a lot of time with the Amish understanding how they built their homes and whether what they were doing might be equivalent to what was required under the code. They had a different way of attaching the roofs to their houses than what was done under the code. But the way they attached it was actually stronger than what was required by the code. I remember some of the Amish men actually kind of laughing when they saw what the code required because I said, we wouldn't do that. That's not good enough. And so that was a place where the town looked at it and said, you know, that's right. What they're doing is actually at least as strong as what the code says. So we can recognize that as being equivalent to the code. Then there were finding ways to meet in the middle. There were other places where the Amish found they could have some room for compromise. One of the problems that came up was window size. Your window 
in a bedroom has to be big enough for a firefighter to go in and out. And some of the Amish windows were a little bit too small. It turned out the Amish had two sizes of windows that they used and that it was okay for them to just use the larger size in all the bedrooms. And so that's what they agreed to do from now on is that they could just use the same window they were already using downstairs and put that upstairs in the bedrooms. In addition to the window size, there was one other requirement that proved tricky. The hardest thing for us to overcome was what to do about the smoke detectors. The Amish did not want those to be in their homes. The city was adamant that they needed to be in the homes, and it seemed like there was nothing we could do. A stalemate, so to speak. That is, until... Ultimately, what we worked out was a solution where the uh, code enforcement officer would actually come into the Amish home and bring her own ladder and her own nail. We were very specific, your own ladder, your own nail. And she would hang up a smoke detector while she was doing the inspection. Uh, the Amish consider it a housewarming gift. You receive a housewarming gift and you can do whatever you want with it after your guest leaves. And so uh, they would come in and they would install the smoke detector with their own nail and then they would certify that this was compliant and they would leave and then it's completely up to the Amish and their religious practice whether they have to maintain that smoke detector or not. And when we were talking to Karen, she pointed out that once the smoke detector is in the house, the Amish are in the same position as anyone else. And Katie, how often do you really remember to change your smoke detector batteries? I plead the fifth. And there's no law that says you can go into someone's house to see if they have a smoke detector. And so in that way, they're like every other person, you know. If your smoke detector battery is dead, it might as well not be there. And how many remember to change the battery? So you reached a settlement ultimately with the Morristown County officials. Tell me how that settlement was favorable to our clients, what we won, and what the state won. What the settlement did was really sensible because it found ways to recognize what the Amish were already doing as consistent with the code. The Amish were able to compromise on some things like the window sizes and say, okay, we're already doing that in one place. We can do it in another. That's fine. And it allowed the town to still feel that they were being consistent with the state law because they could recognize that what the Amish were doing was just as good as what was required under the building code. So the Morristown settlement was a win-win. And the best part about it is the settlement has served as a model to prevent other conflicts between the Amish and the English over building codes. And it's worked, and it's, it's held up. The hope that we had is that the resolution serve as a model for other areas because Amish keep coming in. And so far it has. There was a, a, an Amish builder in the town of Potsdam, which is about 40, 50 miles from Morristown, not Schwartz and Trooper. So not the most conservative, but similar. And the code enforcement officer said, but you have to have a smoke detector. And Steve Ballin, who worked on this whole case, he was the public defender, called up the code enforcement officer and said, ever hear of Morristown? And that went away. In other areas, they just referred the code enforcement officer, talks to the Morristown folks, and it goes away. So the Amish don't build exactly according to government codes, but their houses are comparably solid, enough so that the government can accept their methods, as we saw in Morristown. 
But why is it so important to the Amish that they continue to build according to their old ways? Most of us, even most of us who are religious, don't see our religion influencing something like the way we construct our homes. Well, both Lori and Karen talked about that. As I understand it, the homes are actually the center of their community because that's where they meet to worship. So it seems to me how they build their homes and um, the manner in which they do so actually is really central to their religious life. It really is. Uh, As you said, this is where they come for meetings. This is where they come for worship. They don't have a church building. They all go to somebody's house and come to worship together. And the way they do it actually is uh, harkens back to the colonial era in America because they will start the work by building a foundation, digging out the basement, preparing that part of the home. And then the whole community comes together in a single day to put up the walls of the house. And so the women in the community will uh, cook lots of food and get a big spread ready to feed everyone. And then the men in the community, from grown men all the way down to teenagers and younger boys will come together and actually put up the frame of the house and build the walls and put them up. And this is the way that they teach these traditional practices and hand them down from generation to generation. Karen pointed out that religion often has as much to do with tradition and community as it does with scripture or teachings. Most Amish can't you know, cite Bible chapter and verse and, and they don't have Sunday school and they're not... Um, you're Amish by how you do everything. You know, so a Schwarzenschuber Amish person is, is Schwarzenschuber in that they live a life of the ordinum. And that is going to govern the clothes you wear. It's going to govern the furniture in your home. It's going to govern how you build your home. It's going to govern, you know, what kind of stockings you put on and how long your dress is. All those things are part and parcel of being a Schwarzenschuber Amish person. And so, so having a home that doesn't have a smoke detector is part and parcel of the faith that you have that makes you Schwarzenegger Amish. And the other point Karen made is that just because we don't understand or agree with the principles of another religious faith doesn't mean we can just ignore that faith. If we don't stand up for the religious liberty of other people, we can't expect anybody to stand up for our own. And and that's why I think it's essential. I mean, there, there has to be some way to to work together to respect everybody's religious beliefs. You know, and I, when I, again, when I, I think about those meetings and the patience with which, you know, and, and, and certainly I, I know from, from the non-Amish side, they go, what? Um, you know, we leave those meetings saying, do you think they'll do this? No, I don't think they were, I don't think they will. And it, and it makes no sense. But if that were the grounds on which I said, well, we don't have to pay attention to those folks, I'd be discarding a lot of people whose religious beliefs don't make any sense to me. I think we have to. It's for everybody or it's for nobody. I think what these Amish cases show best is how the Amish can serve as a model for government officials to accommodate religious practices in a very successful way to keep in mind what the goal of particular legislation is or particular rules and say, how can we meet the goal in a way that doesn't impinge on someone's religious beliefs? And the Amish are willing to sit down and work. Lori talked about this too. So the Amish are a really good example of how a minority faith group can get trampled by the law. Not always because it's 
something discriminatory or somebody's out to get the Amish, most of the time, just because the Amish have not changed and the laws and society around them have. And so I think the Amish can set a really good precedent and can serve as a really good example of ways that we as a society can work to respect religious diversity and to respect and protect religious communities who serve as an important part of the fabric of our nation and yet are very different from the people around them. Music in this episode by Eric McNerney, Lynn Patrick, and Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you to Professor Donald Craybill, Professor Karen Johnson-Weiner, and Beckett's own Lori Windham for granting us interviews in this episode. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious liberty for all. For more information on this case, our work, and stream of conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. This is Hannah Smith and Katie Geary. Thanks for joining us.